Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The laws and regulations around online content moderation have been a hot topic in the technology policy space since the creation of the internet. This past year has reignited a long-time debate about the intent of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Section 230 is the regulatory framework that gives online intermediaries who host user-generated content legal protection from the content users place on the platforms. But Section 230 is far more nuanced. The section of the law written by Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, and former Congressman Chris Cox, a Republican from California, as part of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, stipulates that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. However, there is a second part to Section 230 that receives much less attention. It's Section C2 of the law. Section C2 provides immunity from civil liabilities for information service providers who choose to remove or restrict content from their services deemed obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. This protects the service whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, as long as they act in good faith in this action. So Section 230 does protect online platforms from being held liable for content users' posts and comments but it also allows the platform to take down content as part of their policy. This dual-edged sword afforded to platforms by Section 230 has allowed social media companies to innovate and grow significantly, but has also recently drawn scrutiny from legal scholars, consumer protection organizations, and citizens who either enjoy or are offended by content in both ends of the political aisle. Our guest today argues that Section 230 is not operating as the law was intended. The internet has grown much since the days of the message boards of 1996 to a vast driver of our digital economy and is key to how people communicate and conduct business. The question is, if Section 230 needs to be changed, how, if at all, do we change it? Today's guest is Neil Freed. Neil is the founder of Digital Frontiers Advocacy, an organization that assists clients on media and copyright laws that are before Congress, presidential administrations, and independent government agencies. As a Federal Communications Commission attorney, Neil helped implement the 1996 Telecommunications Act, of which Section 230 is a part, giving him firsthand legal understanding of how Section 230 operates and what proposed changes to 230 would mean in practice. Neil joins the podcast to share his suggestion on how to amend Section 230, namely by restoring platforms' duty of care by requiring anyone using the internet as a communications medium to take reasonable steps to curb illegal activity as a condition of receiving Section 230 liability limitations. Neil, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Explain to Shane today. You were part of the team that helped implement the 1996 Telecom Act as an attorney at the Federal Communications Commission. So you witnessed the birth of Section 230 firsthand. Can you give us some context around the discussion that created the now very famous section to the 1996 Telecom Act? Sure, I'd be happy to. And thank you, Shane, for inviting me to participate today. It was my first podcast, so very excited. Maybe some history would be helpful. You may recall we used to have essentially dial-up bulletin boards, the first sort of real consumer use of the internet. You may have heard of CompuServe. Prodigy was another sort of, at the time, big one. These guys don't exist anymore. But then it was one of the leading uses. And Prodigy was billing itself as a family-friendly bulletin board. 
And so what they were doing was they were moderating their chats. And so if someone posted something on one of their bulletin boards that was profane or abusive, Prodigy moderators would actually take that stuff down. And interestingly, in what was one of the first cases about online defamation using common law, this was before Section 230 was passed, a court in New York said that because Prodigy was moderating some of the content, it could be held culpable for all of the content on its site, even content it had not moderated. And because something that was allegedly libelous got through on one of the bulletin boards, a court said that Prodigy could be held culpable for the defamation. Now, that case never went to complete fruition. It was settled. So it may be that Prodigy wouldn't eventually be held culpable for defamation. But the precedent was alarming to Congress because here, Prodigy tried to moderate, tried to do the right thing, and essentially was being told, well, you're going to be punished for doing the right thing. You could be held culpable. And so that got Congress very concerned. And that's actually what prompted the passage of Section 230. So Prodigy thought they were doing the right thing by reviewing what the comments were. And at this point, it was... So there was no, they didn't know how to treat things like this because it was basically you were either looking at it as a news item or a pri- private bulletin boards would, you know, really wouldn't in a digital form were a new thing. So we didn't have rules on those yet. Okay. The court just applied common law that applied to media organizations. And generally, an entity that edits content, a newspaper, can be treated as the publisher of what people put in their publication. And so just applying the common law, Because Prodigy was exercising editorial control, the ordinary legal standards applied. And just like a newspaper could be held culpable for what some, an article that someone puts in the newspaper, essentially the court said that Prodigy could be held culpable, not necessarily was, but that you apply the normal defamation law to see whether or not Prodigy should be held culpable for things that were on its platform, even even though it may not have moderated that very thing even though it didn't know that piece of content was there, because it was moderating some, it was culpable for all. Okay. So thank you for the, the baseline there. And so then what happened? Congress wanted to encourage platforms to moderate, right? This was a new communication medium, showed lots of promise, let everybody communicate, something we all wanted to encourage. But the fear by Congress was that, well, wait a minute, what lesson Prodigy has learned is, wait a minute, we should stop moderating. The lawyers for Prodigy would reasonably say, well, if we want to minimize our exposure to litigation, we're going to stop all moderation. And that's the exact opposite result of what everybody wanted. At the time, both Wyden and Cox were members of the House and and saw this as a problem and, and very reasonably, and I think with the right intention, decided to pass legislation that said, hold on, hold on, let's change the common law standard so that you can't be held culpable just because you've chosen to moderate. And so they, Congress overwhelmingly very quickly passed Section 230. And one provision in Section 230, specifically Section 230C2, actually solves the prodigy problem. What that provision says is that efforts to actually moderate by a platform cannot be used against that platform in terms of creating culpability for what's on the platform. So again, if this, if this had played out, if, if what happened with Prodigy had played out after Section 230C2 had passed, the court would have said the opposite. Well, Prodigy did moderate, and the mere fact that they moderated doesn't expose them to liability. 
So I find that really interesting. I, you and I were at an event and I was co-moderating when you brought up this topic and you brought up the idea of C1 versus C2. So we're going to deep dive here. And just a little caveat, I normally avoid the section 230 discussion because it's the equivalent in our policy space of just you know lighting a gasoline fire. So I appreciate you calmly walking us through the, the differences because I, you know, you hear about the 26 words and you know, we hear a lot about that, especially on the Twitter sphere. So what is the difference between C1 and C2? Because once you explained this to me, I was like, huh. So, <laughs> we don't uh, hear a lot of conversation about one versus two. So many people that have concerns about section 230 have concerns about C1. So we just talked about C2, which says you can't be held culpable because you moderated. You do the right thing and you don't get new liability exposure because you chose to moderate. The problem with C1, and what C1 says is that you cannot be treated as the publisher of third-party content on your platform, full stop. Now, that language probably also evolved from some of the common law standards, and there is a reasonable way of interpreting it. The problem is that the first courts to construe Section 230 said that Section 230C1 just says you are immune from all third-party content on your platform, even if you do no moderating, right? So C2 protects you in what we were really worried about. Prodigy moderated, the moderating shouldn't cause liability. But C1, essentially, the way it's been interpreted, trumps C2. And according to the Internet Association's own study, 91% of Section 230 cases are decided under Section 230C1. And what that means is you don't have to examine whether the platform does any moderating. And if Congress was trying to encourage content moderation, C1 doesn't do that. C1 says you're immune for third-party content. And what that means, and this this is where the concern comes up, if you are reckless in the way you facilitate illegal activity by your users, if you are negligent, or even if you know that there's illegal activity by your users on your platform, and if you do nothing, right? If you're negligent, you're reckless, or you know about the illegal activity and do nothing, you are still immune from the way in which courts have interpreted Section 230. And that C1 actually short circuits the whole objective of Section 230, because if you wanted to encourage content moderation, but then you tell the platform, you're immune if even if you do no content moderation, that removes the legal incentive to moderate because you can't be held culpable. And it actually creates an economic incentive not to moderate or to minimize moderation because moderation costs money. And if the lawyers are told you're not culpable, the lawyers are gonna tell the company, well, you don't need to moderate. And then the economists will say, well, why are we spending so much money? It's not protecting us, we're immune anyway. So it actually, unfortunately, the way C1 has been interpreted, I don't think this was Wyden's or Cox's intent, but the way the courts have interpreted it, C1 creates the opposite effect. It eliminates the ordinary duty of reasonable care that ordinarily requires all businesses to actually take reasonable steps to prevent users from engaging in legal activity. So to the to the innocent mind, that sounds like the lawyers just stop reading. <laughs> like they're like, Oh, we get this. We get this little part here. These twenty-six words say that I not only don't have to, but I shouldn't do anything because I don't. You know, if I do something, I will be held accountable for it. But if I do nothing, this protects me. Am I getting that right? Yes. So, with without Section two hundred and thirty, if you did something, you might be held culpable, right? If you 
moderated some, but not enough, under common law, you could be held culpable. The way 230C2 applies, just 230C2, if you moderate reasonably, you wouldn't be held culpable. What 230C1 says is that even if you moderate unreasonably, or even if you don't moderate at all, you are still immune. So after 230C1 is in place, the lawyers are acting reasonably, right? They're looking at the law and the law says you're not held culpable. And the lawyer is telling the platform, no need to do anything. And then some platforms are actually building businesses around the fact that they don't have to be reasonable in their content moderation. They can just turn a blind eye. So let's take a look at some of the cases that have been like, what happened in the Grinder case a couple of years ago? And that was for the, you know, they just said, no, we're not, from what I understand, they're just not going to do it. The Grinder case is the best example of what's going wrong with Section 230. And again, we don't know how this case would ultimately be decided absent 230. And this is the problem with 230C1. It says that the claim cannot proceed. So we don't even know, and this is the problem, the, the, the victims who have an alleged claim never get to determine whether or not they've been wronged. The court just says, I can't hear it. So here's what happened in Grindr. So Grindr is a dating app. And what happened was a user, essentially a couple split, and one of the couple was unhappy about that and started impersonating their former boyfriend and actually started putting on Grindr solicitations to come have rough sex with the ex, pretending that they were the ex. So if you looked on the platform, you thought it was Herrick, right? It looked like Herrick was asking for rough sex at his home, at his business, anywhere you saw him on the street. And the post even said, if I protest, ignore me because it's just part of the role playing. And so that the ex was creating this charade and subjecting Herrick to awful, awful harassment. And Herrick reasonably went to Grinder and said, hey, this isn't me. Please stop. Take it down. Yeah. And the allegation is, is that even after Grinder was alerted on multiple occasions by Herrick that this was going on, Grinder said, sorry, we don't need to do anything. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to take a side here. Maybe, maybe Grinder, it doesn't sound like it, but maybe Grinder was doing reasonable content moderation. Maybe it wasn't. But because of the way 230C1 is applied, the case ground to a halt, and we never got to determine whether or not Grinder actually was being negligent, reckless, or even knowingly you know, ignoring this problem and actually subjecting Herrick to probably great harm. And all those that are asking for reform are simply saying that can't be the right answer. When there's a, a legitimate claim of negligence or recklessness or knowing facilitation of illegal activity, the court should be able to hear that case. Maybe the platform still wins, but the victim should get their day in court. So now when you introduce the, the C2 element, so how does that, how does does one end up trumping the other in a, a court of law because of case law? Or like, why is it that we hear so much about the first part of this and not the second part? So as I mentioned, the Internet Association's own study says courts, that the platforms rely on C1 almost exclusively, 91% of the time. And that's because they don't need to show that they've done any sort of moderating, right? And that's the real problem, is that C1 ends up almost completely trumping C2. Because why would, a, why would a company want to subject themselves to further potential litigation if they can just say, you know what, 
It doesn't matter whether I moderated or not. This was third-party content. And even if I was reckless, even if I knew about it, it doesn't matter. And that's the problem. C1 has sort of swallowed C2. And the way it's been interpreted, now platforms aren't immunized just when they do the right thing, like Prodigy. They're immunized when they do the wrong thing, even if they do nothing, knowing that there's harm, knowing that there's illegal activity. C1 says, not the platform's problem, which means we are now actually subjecting platform users to a greater risk of harm and actually discouraging content moderation, the complete opposite of Congress's intent. So the Section 230 is in the Title II of the Communications Act, i.e. the common carrier regulation. Does that tell us something that it gets sort of ignored in all of this? Yes. And there was a bit of a discussion of this at the FCC before the change in administration. So then Chairman Pai actually sought comment on what that meant. And I think many of the commenters and the then general counsel of the FCC accurately concluded that because it's in Title II and because other provisions of the act say that the FCC may implement Title II and courts have held that they may implement things that are stuck in Title II, the FCC could actually interpret what Section 230C1 and 230C2 should mean. And based on other precedent, a lot of this came up in the interconnection context. It's an old, old set of cases. But essentially, the FCC could interpret what that language means, and subsequent courts would have to follow the FCC's interpretation. Now, this doesn't mean that the FCC actually regulates the internet, and that's the misnomer. All this says is the FCC gets to say what that language means, the courts then apply it. So we're not talking about regulation. What the FCC under the prior administration concluded is they could give a more rational reading of C1 and C2 to avoid these outcomes. And I think there are, a number of people think there are rational ways of construing that language. And this could solve it, but we had a change of administration. And even before that, just before the end of the, just after we knew the outcome of the election, but before things happened, Chairman Pai said, okay, you know, pens down, we're not going to go further in this proceeding. And acting chair Rosenworcel has said she does not intend to move forward at this time on that proceeding. So it is relevant as a footnote in that I believe there's a strong argument the FCC could construe this language. At the moment, it does not look like the, the FCC will interpret that language. Now, maybe tomorrow they might, you know, sometime in the future. But right now, the FCC has said, we're not going to interpret that language, which is why it's really sort of back squarely in Congress's hands. And to be honest, that's usually the better result anyway. It's much better for Congress to explain what its language means. And if it's decided it wants to change how that language is construed, it's much better for Congress to make clear its intention. So I still believe that it's better for Congress to reform Section 230, but everybody should keep in mind that there is an avenue for the FCC to do so if it chooses. So you've been around this for 25 years, really since the beginning. Um, and something like that, this. Yeah. Do you, so you really think that legislation is our, our best resolution? I do. It's the strongest footing. You want the, the duly elected representatives of the people to make as clear as possible what they want their laws to do. When there's ambiguity, and I think there is arguably ambiguity in the way this language has been applied, then courts fill in that ambiguity. But the better solution is to avoid the ambiguity in the first place and for Congress to make absolutely clear what it wants. And I would just suggest that 
if we look at all the bills that are being introduced and all the acrimony we are seeing, I do believe there is actually consensus that Section 230 is not operating in the way it should. Some say it's not operating in the way it was meant to. Some say, well, it may be that was what we meant, but what we know now, we want to do something different. But I think there is general consensus that 230 is not operating in a positive way. That now the debate is, well, how do we change it? And that's you know where where we are today, which is there's debate about what should we do. Right. Well, the intent in 1996 is vastly different world than what we live in today. So do we end up with things like the Facebook Oversight Board where they're trying to take a level of responsibility, but they are not sure how to do this either? And they put a lot of scholarly, you know, advice and candor and corporate money behind it. <laughs> so, yeah. So ordinarily, right, if an entity were regulated, it would do what the regulators or the law says. If the entity were subject to judicial review, it would do what it needs to do to be compliant with the precedent of the courts. Here, in a very unique situation, we have neither, right? So the internet platforms are not subject to regulation. And because of Section 230, they're not subject to court precedent about negligent behavior, right? Every other business, whether it's a hotel or a nightclub or a a pawn shop, all of these entities are subject to negligence claims in court if they do something unreasonable. And all of those services and many others have analogs on the online world. And the difference is, is that the brick and mortar company is subject to a duty of care. If they act unreasonably, they can be sued. But the same service now offered online by a platform, the platform is now not subject to the duty of care, can't be sued for negligence. And so we have negligent or worse behavior by platforms being immunized when their rivals, the brick and mortar analog, still can be sued. And that has two consequences. One, I would argue it makes people less safe online, right? As more of our economy moves from brick and mortar online, we're essentially taking people from a place where they're protected from negligence related to third-party conduct and put in a place online where there is no protection from negligence for third-party conduct. That makes people less safe. It also creates a competitive disparity. Now, all those brick and mortar, right, whether it's the mom and pop shop or anybody in the brick and mortar world now actually is subject to this duty. And that's going to make it harder for them to compete against platforms who can, as the saying goes, move fast and break things. And when the, what 230 says is if they break things in the way they facilitate illegal activity, they can't be held culpable. That's why companies like Facebook can do what they choose to do. Now, I give credit to any company that decides voluntarily to take efforts to moderate. I would just suggest that if purely voluntary efforts were always enough, we would never need laws. And I think the track record is showing that Section 230 is actually creating the wrong incentives and we're having bad outcomes both for consumer safety and competition because of the way Section 230 has been construed. And that's where I think it is time and why I think you're seeing such call from all sides to change something about 230. The debate is, what do we change? You're also a copyright lawyer. So how does that engage? And I'm a little back to the conversation you just had, but you know, what do you do about this when people are just ripping off your stuff? So copyright issues, intellectual property issues are not governed by the immunity of Section 230, but there is a similar provision, Section 512 of the Copyright Act, that does deal with copyright infringement, a different illegal act. I would never, ever equate child sex trafficking 
with copyright infringement. So I'm not saying these are equivalents, but there is an underlying problem that's common to both Section 230 and Section 512. And that is both of those provisions create a safe harbor that is overbroad. Both provisions say the platform is held immune even if they don't take certain steps to prevent illegal activity. In the one case in Section 512, it's doing adequate steps to prevent copyright infringement. Right? All they have to do is take it down after the fact. And once there's copyright infringement, the harm has already occurred to the copyright holder. Right? Once one copy of your content is available on the internet, it's available everywhere, right? globally, in, in many, many more than just one file. It just spreads. right? So if the only requirement is to do something after the fact, take down copyright infringement, the harm's already occurred. And I would argue it's the same thing on Section 230. Certainly more significant harms to the public. Copyright is harmful, but I'm not, again, going to equate it to all the other types of illegal activity happening on the internet. Both of those provisions do the same thing. They say, platform, you're immune, even if you don't do enough to stop the initial illegal activity. And that's the common denominator between them both. And I think in both cases, Congress is reevaluating, do we have the right incentives, the right structure to prevent illegal activity from third-party behavior occurring on a platform? I think they're all kind of saying, maybe not. And that's why we have to discuss, well, then what do we do next? Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because, you know, we watched the digital world kind of grow up around you and I, and it's like the laws just haven't, you know, a lot of times they just, something bad, something bad, but now we're dealing with, you know, lots of different measures on this. So you've definitely put a lot of thought into this. So going forward, what do you think we should keep an eye on in this space? So I think Congress should actually address two issues. And I think there is actually consensus that both of these issues need to be addressed, right? So the first we've talked about, which is facilitation of unlawful behavior by platform users. And I think the solution there for dealing with unlawful conduct by third parties online is to actually reestablish the duty of reasonable care that would otherwise apply to platforms, just like every other business, but for the way Section 230C1 has applied, right? That's what we just talked about. Now there's no liability, even if they do nothing. And the way you change that, the way you recreate the duty of reasonable care is you amend Section 230 to say you only get the immunity if you take reasonable steps to curb unlawful activity by your users. That recreates the the duty of care. So again, you leave essentially 230C2, which is if you do take reasonable steps, the fact that you took steps doesn't mean you're going to be held liable. The act of moderating itself should not create liability. However, if you are unreasonably, right, if you are negligently, recklessly, or knowingly facilitating illegal activity, you should lose your 230 protection. Again, if you take the reasonable steps, then you're protected. That, that solves the problem because now when you're doing the right thing, you're protected. But when you're doing the wrong thing, you're not. That would solve the denying victims access to the courthouse steps when there's been negligence, recklessness, or knowing facilitation of illegal activity. That's one category. The second category is lawful speech. And everyone talks about sort of the cliche that, and this is a gross oversimplification, but that Democrats are concerned about basically harmful but lawful content that still makes it up on the platforms and believe that platforms are doing too little moderation to stop what some people call lawful but awful content. 
And the generalization is that Republicans have the flip concern, that too much content is being taken down, and they believe that's evidence of bias, that disproportionately conservative speech or their speech is being taken down, and that it's lawful, and that you shouldn't be taking down lawful speech. Yeah, it's an interesting um, paradigm we're in right now, yeah. But, but there is a common concern there, which is that both Republicans and Democrats, even if you take those generalizations to be true, both believe that platforms are being erratic and less than transparent in the way they decide what they will or won't take down or, or leave up. Today, they leave it up. Tomorrow, they take it down. And because people don't understand the bases for that, I think people are, are confused and feel that it's unfair because they don't know the rules of the road. And that if we all knew the rules of the road, perhaps we wouldn't feel it wouldn't seem as problematic if we understood what was happening. Moreover, if it was clearer and you knew going in, this stuff is going to be left up and you decide you don't want to be subjected to that stuff, you'd go to another platform. So to address lawful content that people believe is harmful, I think we need transparency requirements, right? The First Amendment does not allow Congress to say, you must take something down, you must leave something up, right? These are private entities, the platforms, they have a First Amendment right to decide what they want up and what they want down. We can't mandate what they leave up or what they take down. But you can say, you've got to be clear about what you leave up and what you take down. You need to spell that policy out. You need to follow that policy. You need to give people an opportunity to file a complaint if they believe that either leaving something up or taking it down is in violation of the platform's own policy. They need a way to appeal those decisions if after filing a complaint, they think the platform still didn't reach the right conclusion. If you mandate those transparency requirements and platforms don't follow their own published policies or don't have these processes in place, then you would say they lose their 230 protection. So again, you can't tell them what they have to moderate, but you say you have to honor your own moderation practices. If you don't honor your own practices, you lose 230. If you do something that your policy doesn't say you'll do, maybe it's a breach of contract or an unfair trade practice. Now you have a constitutional way of making sure people know what's going to happen on the platforms. We create a little more transparency, perhaps a little less of an erratic content moderation scheme, and people now have choices. People can decide, I don't like this policy, I'm going to go somewhere else. Or maybe a new competitor says, you know what, I see an opportunity here. All these policies don't address a certain niche group of users' desires. I'm going to create a new platform with a new policy that maybe better addresses whatever the gap is in content moderation. And now maybe you have more innovation and creativity and competition around moderation policies. So I'd, I'd pair those two. Do you think um, anyone's doing the transparency part right? I mean, there's been a couple reports, yeah. but they usually get criticized. Yeah. So you're seeing little bits and pieces of all of these ideas, but never in the same bill. Jen Schakowsky has a transparency bill. There are transparency provisions in the PACT Act. Conversely, you have the Earn It Act, right, which says, no, no, you've got to, you're no longer going to be protected if you let child sexual abuse materials on. Those are all positive things. But I think what we really need is sort of a combination of these approaches, whether it's combining bills or creating a new bill. Congress can pass, and I get the, the, the motivation to pass specific bills to address, address specific problems. It absolutely makes sense that we're worried about child sexual abuse materials. Let's introduce a child sexual abuse material bill. But here's the problem. The internet is a distributed network. That's its beauty, but it is vast. And we are never possibly going to be able to pass an individual law 
for every possible harm that occurs on the internet. But if we take sort of this approach, the backstop, the failsafe would be to say, if you are not reasonably moderating illegal activity, you lose 230. And you pair that with transparency requirements. That bill could be the backstop for everything. And so rather than have to pass a thousand of these bills, yeah, you, you, maybe you pass right just the child sexual abuse material bill, but then you have a backstop so that any current or future illegal activity is addressed. And all the concerns about erratic and less than transparent content moderation are addressed. You pair those two things up, that's a great failsafe that doesn't regulate, that doesn't have a government entity govern speech. The reasonableness standard is inherently flexible. One of the criticisms we hear all the time is this is going to, you know, Facebook is going to live in this world because it's got all the resources it needs. Right. But the small mom and pop platform, if such a thing exists, can't. But the reasonableness standard solves that because the reasonableness standard will require the court, as it does today in all negligence cases, to look at the resources available to the platform. A large platform has far more resources than a small platform, which means that a small platform will probably be vindicated if it's doing what it can with the resources it has, whereas a large platform will have to show a lot more. That, that solves those problems. So I, I think that's the real solution, right? It avoids all the criticisms we hear about Section 230 reform. It's future-proof, and, and this package could address both unlawful activity and, in a constitutional way, address lawful speech that some people would like at least some platforms to do a better job of, of preventing. You know, thank you for walking us through all that. I'm sure I'm going to hear from a lot of our friends who <laughs> are going to want to come on and, and talk about the counterpoint. But I just think a lot of what you talk about there really makes a lot of sense. I realize that there's, you know, there's a lot of lines we have to decide where they go and the reasonable scan standard will have its moment in court if it ever gets into legislation. But the quagmire that has been Section 230 is a little more understandable now, hopefully, to some of my listeners. And I hope that you will keep us posted on the work that you're doing in this area. And I just want to thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.